Warning, please be aware this podcast contains adult themes. Parental guidance is advised. Hello and welcome to the Talking Footy podcast. I'm Sam Lane and this week we meet the AFL's first female premiership coach, Beck Goddard. In this episode, Beck reflects on being told why she couldn't continue with footy at age 13. And then of course the usual story happens where you can't play footy anymore. So I stopped and I ended up going to basketball and cricket. On overcoming teenage bullying. I was bullied significantly to the point I had to change schools. And the kind of conditions women's footy has faced over the years. In what circumstances it would be okay for a state team to travel halfway between Sydney and Canberra, train on a ground that's Um, the cows are literally grazing on when you arrive. We also cover the impact footy has had on young women, Beck's umpiring career, and why she wrote love letters to her Adelaide players to start the AFLW season. Let's go to Beck. We're talking footy. Beck Goddard, thank you for joining us. You've just coached the first AFL female premiership side. It's a game-changing moment in Australian history. Sports change forever here now that the country's biggest, richest code is including and supporting women like never before. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been eight days yeah. since you held that cup aloft on the Gold Coast. Just give us an insight to what that kaleidoscope of activity has actually meant. Um, it's meant that I've only spent one night in my own bed. Um, since then and been a bit on a, a, a clocked up a few frequent flyers I suppose um went back to Adelaide after the Gold Coast checking out of a hotel very early the next day um but we had to get to Brisbane first so it was a bus ride from the Gold Coast to Brisbane then um the flight back to Adelaide and obviously landing in Adelaide with a, a water cannon salute which as I understand it hasn't happened in Adelaide in 21 years since the Rolling Stones were there <laughs> Um, so that was incredible. And then, you know, of course, getting to Adelaide Oval in front of, you know, 40,000 plus fans um, for a standing ovation. And you have a sense, mm. clearly because of your own experience of the his- history that I've mm. mentioned in the intro. But before we get to that, yeah. um, just on a personal level, like what among all the activity that has gone on in the last eight days stands out to you as sort of the most precious moment where it where yeah. the gravity has distilled oh I've, I've had a couple of moments privately with no one around so I, when I got home for sort of about you know 20 hours um, I managed to put the replay on briefly okay. um, and um, I just got to the national anthem that's that's actually as far as I got before I had a few got, had a few tears and got quite emotional and then I had some friends coming around for dinner so I quickly switched off and slapped myself and pulled myself together but um, so that that was just sort of thinking about it you know privately I suppose that's that's what happened um, and you know there were a couple of moments over the two red carpet events we had you know Erin winning the the, the league's um, best and fairest mm-hmm. and. Um, we had a, a, a moment just before she got up on stage and just a couple of private words to each other. That was quite emotional. And also at the club champion the following night. Um, that was in Darwin? Yeah, it was in Darwin, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, with Jess Seginary, you know, just a conversation about what the season had meant to her and um, just the relationship that, um, you know, I'd formed with her. So that was that was quite that was quite significant too, I suppose. They're probably the, t- the two things that stand out the most to me. Can you tell us what, what <laughs> Jess said? Um, oh, look, I won't go into the exact detail of it because obviously it, it was quite private, but mm. um, it was just obvious to me um, about, you know, her, her footballing background and, mm. you know, some things that she'd um, gone through in life and uh, to come out 
um, where she is now as part as a part of history and the gratitude that she had for for me um, that was quite significant for me like to to hear that and yeah. I, I tried to explain to her look come on it's you it's your, your teammates but no no she was quite insistent that it was a fair bit to do with me so that was um, that was really special. They need to gather, get it inside fifty quickly. Hilda Brandis has to get it on the boot. Can they get a mark inside fifty? Here's Frederick Traub. Couldn't quite. Crows win. The Adelaide Crows are the first AFLW premiers, and the admiration of a nation, indeed. So then we've come to know you and you've, you've become a household name now as the coach with mm. the hair, with the glasses, <laughs> with the hot pink socks, the one that sings, um, who is just so comfortable, it seems to me, in just being you. Yeah. I want to rewind, rewind to where it started. Like who exposed you to AFL to football and mm. how did it capture your heart? Um, it was just so growing up, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, I was conceived, conceived sensibly in the off-season of 1977. Dad and mum um, waited till obviously, Dad's football season was over. <laughs> and then, Yeah, Dad did at the Belcon and Footy Club in Canberra. Okay. And, um, you know, in 1978, in the middle of winter, I was born in the middle of football season. That's appropriate. Yeah, sure. Um, and I can't remember a time growing up where I... I couldn't not smell the grass or denker up or, um, you know, be getting splinters from working on the scoreboard for Dad's games, for a free sausage and a jelly snake. Um, that was it, you know. I just loved it. And it probably just wasn't even watching Dad or watching the footy. It was more the sense of family and friends around it. You know, um, my grandparents are, are life members at Belconnen and, um, you know, just being around my grandma and my grandfather, like, yeah. that's what I loved. Right. I loved being around them and... Um, that that was that was it. I just just loved it. Yeah, I so loved it, was it. The feeling. It was. Thing. It was the feeling. It yeah. wasn't even really oh, who's winning or losing. Right. It was just all of the emotions that went with. We're going to the footy. Great. We're going to the footy. Do we get to go in the change rooms? You know. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things. I remember going to the change rooms with Dad. Um, you know, in the early eighties, it would have been, and um, there was a very distinct coach that he had at Belconnen at the time, and they'd won the game by the smallest of margins, mm-hmm. and he. He screamed, boys, we've won it. We've won it by the end of a bee's d-. And um, I said to Dad, I remember saying to Dad at the time, Dad, that's a really small amount. And Dad was like, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't be hearing this. You know, block your ears, girl. But those are the types, types of things that I like clearly remember growing up wow. and just thinking, oh, God, I love footy. Vivid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when, what was the transition between just loving the feeling and to, getting into it? Yeah, loving actually the game. Um, I think... Because I was always in it, yep. I was doing something there. So whether I was running the scoreboard or taking Dad's stats, mm-hmm. it then transgressed into um, kicking the footy with my brother, yeah. um, playing in my brother's, going to my brother's football trainings with my dad coached my brother's team. Okay, and there were no girls playing footy, of course, when so I was growing up. You were the only one yeah. in the team. Only yep. one in the team, and yep. um, I goal umpired my brother's games as a as a. 10, 11 year old, which is ridiculous in under eights, yeah. um, and. Um, then I played a few games with my brother up until the age of 13. And then, of course, the usual story happens where you can't play footy anymore. Mm-hmm. So I stopped and I ended up going to basketball and cricket. Um, but at the same time, I actually kept being involved, whether that was making banners for my dad's friends, milestone games, 200 club members, all of that kind of stuff. I was always involved at the footy club. Um, 
and I think it was I turned 17 and became a goal umpire in the Act Tafel. Um, and just got stuck into umpiring. Did boundary umpiring for a bit, but I couldn't keep up with the game. I was way too slow and there was way too much running and you didn't have to think and I didn't really like that. Can you put yourself back into that mind of the 13-year-old that was mm. told you can't do this anymore? Just It's hard yeah. when you're an adult and you know that that's actually just wrong and unfair. But what yeah. did you feel at that time? Like, Were you like confused or were you like angry or this is wrong or I think back then you just sort of accepted it right like which isn't right but but you did you were just like yeah okay that's I get that that's right girls don't do that but there was a lot of things Mm. growing up I was a tomboy growing up um I remember running around in summer in Canberra with my um t-shirt off under the sprinkler and mum saying to me you gotta put your t-shirt back on and I said well why she said because you're a girl right but I didn't. That didn't even occur to me, yeah. you know, as a kid growing up. So I never had any of those. Oh, I can't do that because mm. I'm a girl. I just did it. <laughs> did you feel different when you were allowed to play footy? And did you like that or not? Even um, I think, think because it? I remember at the age of six um, saying to mum, "Mum, I want to cut my hair," and she said, "Well, you can't cut your hair until your first Holy Communion." A week after my first Holy Communion, when I was seven, hair gone, okay. and I've always had short hair since. So. When I was playing footy with the boys, I actually looked like a little boy, so it never looked any different. Mm. Um, and as I sort of got a little bit older and became a teenager, I started to become sort of a bit more concerned about my appearance and I do I look like a boy? I, mm. I did definitely um, start to notice that. Um, I, I certainly had, you know, I, mean, I was bullied pretty badly sort of in my um, early teenage years between the sort of the ages of about 14 to 16. I was, I was bullied significantly to the point I had to change schools. Gosh. So I think... You know, when I did finally change schools and, and get on get on with life, I I just was like, well, that's it. I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna go with whatever I want to do. Right. What? I mean, mm. what were you bullied? Um, I think there was sort of nothing unusual about me. You know, I was just a teenager that you know played sport and you wanted to be popular and play with the play with the popular kids and. You know, teenagers can be vicious, like teenage girls, I think, mm. especially. And I'd hate to be a teenager growing up these days, especially with social media. Mm. But um, it was nothing specific, whether it was I was a bit of a late bloomer and, you know, you smell or why don't you have a bra on, just those types of mm. <laughs> things that I'm sure still go on today. But that was certainly what I was victim of to the point that it was so bad I had to change schools. Gosh, so yeah. it really affected your it did. young life? It did, and changed my grades. You know, I was a straight-A Gosh. student up until the age of, you know... 15 and then all of a sudden I was really low I was getting very low I got to my first um, tertiary entrance rank where they give you a guesstimate and I got a very low 42 and I remember mum saying to me well you're going to end up basket weaving with that what are you going to do with your life basket weaving and I'm thinking basket weaving (laughs) what's that (laughs) but you know I'd been through a you know it's a bit of a tough tough period sort of as a teenager but you know I had a great family life I had a great home life there was nothing that you know oh well you know she's had adversity I had everything I wanted growing up as a kid but that certainly um sort of took me down another path what lifted you up and I think yeah the change of school uh, really helped and as soon as I changed schools I got to play all of the sports I wanted to play um you know I became a sports captain um at Radford College in Canberra um, I started the first ever rock band at the school, which to this day is an institution and hundreds of kids audition every year to get into the rock band at school. Up until that point, they only had orchestras. So I, I started something new there and I'm really proud. I got my name on the wall up at Radford College for that. So um, I just loved 
uh, school, I suppose, and just got a new new energy, a new group of friends, and um, did what I wanted to do. Mm. Gosh, so but sport did play sport, a part. absolutely. Mm. Yeah, wow, it's amazing. Mm. Talk to me. You you played, but then you you moved to umpiring. Did you yeah. want to keep playing? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have definitely kept playing, but. Um, uh, I just turned to basketball. Okay. And that was that. And Were you I, good at it? Yeah, I was pretty good at it, actually. You know, I remember sort of I got to about 15 years old and, you know, you get to that f- your first state selection and all of those kinds of things. And then it became quite a bit onerous for mum and dad. Did you um, make state? Yeah, I did, but okay. I was a bench warmer. Okay. Uh, and then that was a bit frustrating for mum and dad to travel, you know, all around Australia and see the daughter get on for 30 seconds of junk time at the end of a game. So right. mum and dad actually said to me, look, we don't think you should do this anymore. Um, and I stopped playing basketball and um, became pretty good at cricket. I was a fast bowler, actually. Wow. And yeah, so, and I love cricket. Um, and then, so in the winter, I became an umpire. Right. Mm. And so, tell me about umpiring. I imagine it's one thing being an umpire full stop in, mm. in footy and the culture, um, you know, they're still working on it, the AFL, because it's just been cultural that mm. they get abused. When you're a female <laughs> umpire in Canberra, um, who's mm. maybe finding it hard to keep up with the running? I'm imagining that that's a fairly vulnerable position. Can you give yeah. me a bit of an insight into uh, goal how um, it was? Goal umpiring was easy; that was no problem. Um, but when I, I I actually only became a field umpire when the the field umpire forgot to turn up to a game one day, and they said, "Oh, Beck, would you do it?" So I did it, and I I actually really enjoyed it, and I thought, "Oh, I might not be too bad at this." So that was sort of how I fell into field umpiring. Um, and up until the point where I, I finally cracked first grade men's in, in AFL Canberra, I'd been through some really bad years in the third and fourth grade where you hear, you know, it's the drinking culture, all the guys out with their mates and they just want to have a bit of a game on the weekend and then hit the pub. So, um, and some of them are actually very good footballers but past their glory years. Mm. So some of the comments that you heard as a female and umpiring, you know, you, you, you'd still hear. In fact, I was sitting at the, the Crows Hawthorne game yesterday and I heard someone say oh it's not netball <laughs> it's not netball that old that old chestnut that's mm. an original one but then it became a little bit more specific um as the years went on depending on you know what grade you were doing and some of the harshest things I heard oh why'd you blow that free kick is it because you got your period um, right yeah sure okay um or um and you know right down to I, I remember very clearly uh, one day uh, uh, a guy at half time as the umpires were walking off um, turned to his teammates and quite loudly said don't worry guys she's been giving <laughs> to the opposition before the game that's why they're getting all the free kicks in front of men in front of you. yeah wow. in front of me in front of the opposition and in front of all of his mates quite loudly to the so I could hear it and in front of a, a big group of spectators so that for me was probably the worst I think I'd heard um, and it did really affect me. I remember um, afterwards I wrote a, a personal email to the president of the football club, aside from going through the whole report system that you do um, for those types of things and just, just letting him know that that was probably the worst thing I'd ever heard and I hope that you know they were able to do something about it at their club. How old were you? Oh, I was in my, uh, I was in my late 20s by that stage, yeah. And was there a, a satisfactory follow-up? Oh, uh, look, uh, the, cl- the club responded, um, which was great. But um, And, you know, years later I actually ended up going to coach at that football club. But, um, you know, the match review panel, I think, handed him down four weeks 
it was a four week suspension. But I mean, what do you what do you put on that? Like, mm. it's ha- hard to judge well, how you sort of respond to something like that. And when you say it, it did affect you, mm. I mean, what kind of impact did it make you not want to go back? Yeah, and I was really embarrassed actually. I was really embarrassed because, but I don't know why. You know, you, I've heard so many insults as an umpire, you hear them all the time, but I got that audio exclusion after a while. The higher up I went, the less I was able to hear the crowd or the less I was able to hear um, the players. But when it was that sort of specific, I thought, why am I doing this? Like, why am I actually doing this? It was the moment where you almost yeah. just went to stuff you. Exactly. Footy, I'll walk away. Yeah. But you didn't. No, I didn't for, for whatever reason. I think it was because mostly that was actually a recovery game for me. It was actually the third and fourth grade that I'd been umpiring. And at that stage, I was umpiring first grade in Canberra. I was doing the game as a bit of extra running to get a flush run the next day. And I thought, let's just get back to the bigger picture, what I want here, which is to be the best, do the best, and um, not worry about the, mm. the dregs. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it builds a bit of resilience early on. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it sort of motivated you... Um, in, in a way to hold ground to be there yeah uh, anyway so how does this transition into coaching umpiring yeah um I think well in 1998 Canberra got a women's league so I'd been umpiring goal umpiring at that stage um so 1998 came around there's this nine aside started and I sort of watched that play out in 1999 I played my first game for the Belconnen Magpies mm-hmm. the club I'd grown up watching my dad playing wow. it's quite exciting wore my dad's number 22 wow. yeah so um and I loved it and I loved training and um I got on with that and I played for 10 years in Canberra what position in- uh forward okay. forward yeah always went forward I did a bit on the wing but I don't I don't like being tackled. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I love that you so, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't. And, and I think I might have laid one tackle in my whole career. Okay. <laughs> um, so I played for quite a few years in Canberra. I played for the ACT side. Um, I also um, I moved to Melbourne for a couple of years with work and played for Melbourne Uni here. So, yep. you know, met quite a few of the Melbourne girls, Debbie Lee and Charlotte Curtis, yep. those, those great household names. And, um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, went back to Canberra, played for a few more years, and I broke my shin wow. playing football. And sort of when that happened, I thought, oh, I don't know if I can come back. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty significant injury. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, steel rods put into my leg. Um, I was off work for eight weeks, plus the rehab that went after that, obviously. And it's quite a mentally challenging injury to recover from. Um, and so I just continued to umpire. I just stuck on the umpiring track and then turned to coaching right. about 12 months later in the uh, youth girls space at the ACT New South Wales youth, youth girls. So you started with girls. Mm. Why? Um, I think because I enjoyed, I knew how to communicate okay. after 10 years of playing, but also I'd been umpiring, so I knew how to talk footy. Yep. You know, you umpire, you can talk footy. So I thought, oh, it would be easier to just get in that way because I can see... I wanted to be around my mates too, I suppose. Yep. So it wasn't just the youth girls footy that I was coaching. I didn't have any mates in that. But when I started coaching football at the Gungarland Jets, it was my first official coaching job. It was a brand new club in Canberra that had been set up. Um, I, I set it up. The competition needed expanding. There were more girls than ever playing for footy before in Canberra. And I met with that club, said, let's get a women's team. And I started coaching the Gungarland Jets. And I had all my mates play with me. And I was coaching them. How... When you consider what that was like, mm. how challenging was it? What sort of barriers were put in front of women's footy when you're coaching a women's team, girls, women's... I know that you used to turn up yeah. in 
um, you know, in between, you know, Canberra and Sydney yeah. and put your headlights on on yeah. fields to give lights to your yeah. teams. Like, how challenging when you really reflect on what oh. wasn't available to you, how challenging was it? Oh, it's crazy when you think about it. Like, kind of stuff. I just, I suppose it was the priority that women's football was given. So let's say it was very low. Yeah. But in what circumstances it would be okay for a state team to travel halfway between Sydney and Canberra, train on a ground that's um, the cows are literally grazing on when you arrive, turn the headlights on, you can't get the change room doors open, the girls are getting changed in the car park in the middle of winter. After working all day and having to drive another two hours and then you're driving home at 10 o'clock at night back to Canberra. Yeah, and this that's, is you and your team. That's right. Yeah. It, it, we could have, you know, that they were tired, what we were doing, it, any of anything could have happened. You yeah. know, I look back around and think, my God, if one of us had had a car accident, like, we would, that's totally irresponsible. Yeah. All because what we couldn't get a ground, we couldn't afford to get them a bus, we couldn't, what well, you know, what... And what were the forces that were making that not possible or making that so hard? Was well, it just... it just wasn't... There wasn't a national league. Yeah. You know, there wasn't anything elite to strive for, so yeah. why would it be given a priority? Right. You can't get drafted for the AFL. That's it. No one was saying it was important. No, that's right. So, so it wasn't. If, if it's not important, it's... Yeah. Well, why are we going to give you the time and the resources? Yeah. Did you... You spoke about the umpiring and the, yeah. the horrible um, sledge, actually, mm. or insult abuse insert appropriate word um, yeah. that you heard what about in terms of when you were coaching and sort of the attitudes or um yeah discrimination that you either heard or detected or saw around women's footy at this time before someone said it is we do care and we're going to put money into it um i suppose as a coach um I- I felt that I was quite lucky in the clubs that I ended up coaching at. Yep. Um, they're very open. Gun Garland 100% wanted a women's team out there. They wanted to change the culture of their club. They wanted to broaden, um, you know, its stamp in the community. So they were very, very open. Um, but it's when you look at it, it's just community footy. So, you know, we're wearing the jumpers that... You know, the guys from four seasons ago wore, so the girls' boobs are hanging out the side of the jumpers. Yeah. Just little things like that. Yeah. Or, you know, your grand high time girls, we can only get you, get you on at 9 o'clock in the morning, which in the middle of means you've got to get there, you know, an hour before the game, 8 o'clock, the ground's frozen solid in Canberra in the middle of winter. Again, it's all it's all priority-based, isn't it? So, But nobody would ever come out overtly and go, you're not getting that because you're a girl. Mm. That didn't happen. It's just that you were... That's right. The pecking order. Yeah. That's what it was. But then I look at at the positives of it and I look at some of the fine men that were involved in women's football Mm -hmm. over the years and I look at how I coach now and, of course, I take the positives from every football coach I've had rather than the things that I didn't like and I make sure I really love that. I remember loving that as a player Um, and so I incorporate that into my and how I interact with the players. What was going on in your mind before we get to your career as in the the profession at the police force yeah um through this period with coaching what were you aspiring to do yourself as a as a figure in football did you even dream that it could no. be a job it was only recreation no way it was just all recreation right women's football for me was always recreation and it wasn't until I got towards the end of my women's football coaching and I got approached by a Queenbeam football club he said, look, do you want to 
come and coach in the NEFL side. Would would you be interested in that? But I thought, okay, well, that's when I had to make a choice. Well, do I? What do what I want to do with this? Mm. I must be good at it. What year was that? Then? Oh, that would have been two thousand and twelve. Okay, gee. So really, really not that long ago. Yeah. You know, only five right. years ago. And, yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, what do I want to do? End of 2011 it was. What do, what do I want to do with that? So um, that was when I had to go, okay, well, maybe... I knew I was a, a, a good female football coach, a coach for female football, because I'd been quite successful in Canberra mm. um, and obviously coaching the state team as well. So I thought, okay, yeah, I, I, know, I know what I'm doing, but do I want to take the next step or do I want to... Am I actually just happy in community football and just enjoying it and doing it because I want to be around my mates? Sunday, join us for Game Day. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our 10th season of Game Day. Hosted by Hamish McLaughlin, every Sunday at 10am on the channels of 7. She caught up exclusively with Rui this morning. They're pretty confident as well that structurally it's OK. Christian Petrarca's in love with Christian Petrarca. <laughs> it's where all of footy's big names come to play. Tell us about the <laughs> profession then, because if, if footy's recreation, you are studying, yeah. you are getting jobs, yeah. you are, yeah, ultimately joining the police force. What is your, oh, yeah. dare I say it, real job? So 2001, I, I joined the Australian Federal Police um, and, um, you know, I've had, a, had an amazing 16-year career with them now, I suppose. Um, I was a constable at City Police Station in Canberra. I worked in lots of different crime types, um, you know, from uh, transnational sex exploitation, um, ACT policing itself. I worked in Melbourne in national operations. Uh, it's been deployed overseas to, um, which, which has been quite heavily publicised, you know, for the second bombing in Bali and over to Thailand after the tsunami. Um, just, you know, I've been over to Malaysia to, to train Malaysian police and... Um, you know, where I currently am in, in South Australia as the sergeant of the Joint Anti-Child Exploitation Team. So I've had lots of lots of different roles. And you've been on leave from mm. that job to coach the Adelaide Women's Crows. Yeah, I have, yeah. Since when? Since round one. Right. So, so when yeah. you started training in November... I was we... working. <laughs> but, you know, I look at it, and all the girls were too. All the girls have been working this whole way through. Yeah. And, um, you know they've all got different jobs and they're very diverse in what they do as well. So for me, it was if I if I was on afternoon shift and and work was so supportive of me with this. Um, uh, if I was on afternoon shift, I'd start shift. I'd take my dinner break at the time we had training and then finish training and, and get back to work and finish the shift. Oh my gosh! But then from round one, you went full time. I had into to the coaching. In a nutshell, how did you go from being in the ACT and working in? the NEFL system, uh, New South Wales um, AFL, to getting the Adelaide job, which I imagine was the job of your dreams. Yeah, and it was something that I actually thought would never, ever happen. I I actually couldn't quite believe it did. So how did it happen? Well, I didn't expect to come to Adelaide and coach women's football because I've been coaching in the NEFL. When I knew I was moving over to South Australia for work, uh, I, I was coaching Nick Salter at the Ainsley Football Club and Nick played football for Port Adelaide. And uh, he he was a, um, a a Woodville West Torrens Eagles boy, and he said to me, "Beck, I've got some pretty good contacts at the club. Do you want to coach in the SANFL over there?" And so before I'd even signed yes with the AFP, I had a phone call from Woodville West Torrens, and they um, the, the coach Shane Reardon flew over to Canberra, and um, he and I met 
had a coffee for I think it was an hour and a half we could have kept talking for five hours I reckon <laughs> he's an amazing football intellect and uh, we just got on awesome and by the end of the conversation I got a phone call and do you want to coach at Woodville West Torrens in the Centre of Excellence in the SANFL so that's how I started coaching in South Australia mm-hmm. um, halfway through that year uh, Narelle Smith had been coaching the state women's team and she rang me and said, do you want to um, come and do some midfield coaching for me? We've got these two exhibition games, um, and one was a curtain raiser to a Crows game. And I said yes, and uh, coached the midfield, and I think we got a we got like a two-point win over New South Wales ACT, the team that I'd been coaching. Yep. And a week after that game, I got a phone call from David Noble and invited into the club for an informal meeting for an hour and a half, and then the process happened from there. Gosh, and you won the job. I won the job, yeah. Amazing. Now then, I know that you've spoken at length about assembling a team of characters. Yeah. And I say that not as in wild people, I mean particular people. And you used your police uh, background, actually, to yeah. forensically research who you were putting together. Yeah. What, what were you picking, Beck? What people uh, yeah. did you want? As well, well as I made it really clear to the Crows that uh, we weren't setting up something for success. We were setting up um, we were setting up a culture, like for years and years to come, um, something that really people really wanted to be part of, like a, a Crows gang. Uh, so I wanted the right people who actually wanted that, who didn't want to just play one season and um, or. Mm. Couldn't be bothered to turn up to training. It's really easy to send a text message to your coach these days. Oh, my car's broken down. I got stuck at uni. No, oh, I'm sick. Oh, sorry. You know, that type of stuff. I wasn't going to take anyone like that. Mm-hmm. So they could have been the best football talent in South Australia and Northern Territory. And then I wouldn't have touched them if that was what I'd heard of them mm. in their previous history. So I made sure that the ones that I wasn't, that I didn't know enough about, um, I contacted previous coaches or. Um, players that they might have retired players that they'd played with and just say hey this is what I'm thinking uh, what do you know about this person and um, and go from there mm. and the first significant act that you did as coach and I think that really put an imprint on this team was you wrote them all what was described to me as a love letter <laughs> why did you do that um I felt that some of them were still in a place where they they felt that they didn't deserve to be at the Crows, that they didn't deserve to be a part of this amazing journey that we're about to go on. And I I looked at what maybe I would like to be done for me and um, right from the second that I started at the Crows, I always looked at, okay, any negative situation that comes up, we're going to turn it into a positive somehow. So we had to turn any kind of doubts, any kind of negativity that was existing in the group and just turn it into a positive. So I just took the time. I thought, well, I can't write it just for a few. I've got to write it, write something for all of them. And I just took the time um, before our jumper presentation and um, uh, wrote, wrote every single player just a, a private note about, you know, what I thought of them so far. Has anyone that done that for you at the Crows? I mean, I'm really conscious that you've been walking in all of you, yeah. these eight teams, to established male-dominated places, right? Yeah. And you're walking in, this coach, this group of team, you know, players using the same facilities, etc. Yeah. Who, who at Adelaide has made you feel welcome? Oh, the the club I have to say is actually an amazing place. Like it's got, I feel like when you walk in, it's got its own heartbeat, um, right down from. Maria Ballastrin, who 
does everything in the office, is just a, an office manager essentially, but just makes you feel welcome. I could be sitting at my desk and without even saying it, uh, an open packet of um, jelly snakes will just be in front of my nose. <laughs> she doesn't even need to say, she doesn't, I don't need to say anything. She just has this power of knowing, I think you need some sugar. You know, <laughs> you know that, that type of thing. But I suppose for me, the, the person who made the, the most... Um, the biggest impression on me at the club was David Noble. Okay. He's not there anymore, but um, uh, I remember uh, Nobes. I texted Nobes on uh, Grand Final day, just before the game, and I got a text message back and um, from him straight away, just about. I, I thanked him for giving me the job mm. because I knew what a massive risk it was for the Adelaide Football Club, um, and you know, did I think that I'd ever be in the position I was eight days ago? No way. It might not be the right time, but I'm going to go there yeah. anyway to ask about some of the things that have been imperfect. You know, I, I don't think everything could have possibly been smooth for everyone. And one that sort of lingered in my mind was that there was a day, and I read about it just on online, mm-hmm. where I think your team was training and or playing and, mm-hmm. and the Adelaide guys came onto the field and were warming up or something and there was a bit of a to do about it that it was disrespectful etc etc is how do you reflect on that was that just an early teething problem or a lack of understanding yeah I mean at that stage that the AFLW didn't actually exist that was in a in a state game um quite quite early in the piece and I wasn't part of the club at that point but my my recollection of it was that the club's response to to that happening was very was swift and really strong about how how they really did born us there at the club. And I have to say, one of the first text messages I got on Grand Final Day after we won was from Tex Walker. Wow. Which said, you bloody legends. <laughs> I hope the guys can do it now too. And now that's that's amazing. That's, that's awesome. amazing. Yeah. And have it's you, what you want. Have you, you had know. lots of interaction? Well, we don't because the boys are there during the day mm. and the girls are there at night. So that's not because... We, we choose not to. It's actually just a, a logistical yeah. a logistical arrangement. And I know that when I'm at the club during the day, which I, I have been during the season, of course, um, the boys drop around to the, to, um, to the office and they'll stop and talk to me about footy. Eddie in particular is quite interested in knowing um, what we were going to do about... Um, you know, this double teaming, triple teaming, you know, quadruple teaming of yeah. Sarah Perkins, yeah. you know, and he couldn't work out why other forwards were behaving a certain way when that was happening. So he and I had quite a lengthy discussion about it. But, you know, those are the types of things that you want to see at a footy club and um, that they've been great, really. I, I can't, I, and I'm not saying this because I have to, yep. they are a club to be at. Awesome. I love yeah. it. That's, I think, what we all want to hear. Mm. Sarah Perkins, you just mentioned her. Um, she was essentially the last woman picked in this draft, yeah. and yet you backed her in. Why? Uh, it's a first impression, I suppose. I I saw that she didn't get picked up on draft day. You know, we were pretty busy on draft day ourselves, obviously getting our phone calls into all the players that we drafted, and I, I said uh, to our coaching staff from the outset, unless there's someone incredible left in Victoria, we're just going to go with the next cab off the rank in South Australia or NT because it's not going to be worth it because they're going to go back to Victoria or whatever it is, and if they're of the, sort of the same milk, I'm not going to bother. So they had to be incredible to, to get over to South Australia in, in free agency. So when I saw that she didn't get picked up, I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. Mm. I wonder what the story is behind that. And what did you find? Uh, that uh, image, I suppose, and size matters mm-hmm. uh, to a lot of people, and yep. it didn't matter to me. Yep. Um, you know, we, we, we've all seen the, 
the photos and I know you know certainly from personal experience in my life too um, Sarah and I have come through a very quite a similar journey I, I got to a stage where I was quite heavy I was 105 kilos at one stage and I dropped 37 kilos to umpire in first grade in the in the NEFL so I could see how her life sort of snowballed out of control in a in a social circle and she flew to Adelaide uh, the second I met her I, there was a connection between the two of us and um, I knew that I wanted her on the team so I then had to sell it to the to the other coaches and the club and say let's get it done and it and it did it happened wow mm. is that one of is it one of the greatest success stories that you've been involved in and I don't mean to trivialize it like that but mm. the fact is she was one of the most outstanding players in the comp yeah. she's dropped 35 kilos mm. her mother is saying to her I've never seen you so happy yeah. in your life and yeah. this is a young woman whose life has been transformed and she's only getting better yeah she's it is I think it's a really powerful story and um I, I just it, it was really obvious to me I think she could have been taken by any club over in Melbourne and she would have done this she would have performed the same way right I do think that because she was ready she was ready She'd been through it. She'd gotten through her journey, you know, and she was just ready to unleash. She'd had a terrific season in the VFL where she'd kicked a stack of goals in a team that wasn't at the top. So mm. when you look at her averages, you know, she was very successful against some of the top clubs. And um, I looked at um, how the style of football that we wanted to play and I wanted a full forward. Mm. <laughs> I wanted a big one to clunk them at the end. You know, I used to love watching the Fev growing up and even Jason Dunstall. I just loved the... Plugger, I love the big full forward. You got your woman back. Yeah. Leads us to Erin Phillips. And, look, we've seen what she does on field. I, I heard her speak recently about um, the day at training where she wasn't seeing things that she thought were good enough yeah. and she asked your permission yeah. if she could have a word to the team. Can you give us your version when it was and what was said? It was very early in the piece. Might have even been the first training session, possibly the second. Um and uh, it would, would have been uh, after, just after warm-up we'd gone into a first drill and all the girls were I think a bit nervous because Erin Phillips is here mm-hmm. um, and she looks terrific, she's yeah. an athlete you know, in her own right but um, the standard of training was not good and there was a bit of a the, the, there was a lack of intent being shown by a couple of players who I think still thought they were a bit of a club footy or state footy and uh, I brought them all in and Erin obviously sensed that I was about to say something and as we were walking in she just came right up next to me and she whispered um, do you mind if I say something before you do and I said yep and that was it she unleashed on the group about um, training standards um, and what we were here for and what the purpose of training was um, and what we needed to be if we were going to go anywhere um, and there were quite a few shocked faces, but also a lot of nodding at that at that same time, and then bang, they were out, Gosh. back into training. So what month was this? This was in November. Right, when you just started. We just started. And you say unleashed. Did she, was she harsh? Well, it was harsh. Wow. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that Erin and I, as the season's gone on, she and I have always, took, she says to me, Beck, just unleash. Just right. let them have it. You know, sometimes they need to hear it. Um, but I suppose... Um, there's a time and a place and you've got to be careful when you do it. Yep. And, um, look, there were there were moments, I think it was, might have been quarter time in the Fremantle game where I did unleash. Right. Um, and three-quarter time at the Collingwood game 
where it, we were, the game was on the line, where I was pretty strongly sort of talked about the consequences if we didn't actually start doing what we what we, we were more than capable of. There were a couple of times during the season it happened, but otherwise um, it was quite composed. Erin even said to me early in the piece, if you need to use me as an example, then use me as the example. So we got to points where we'd go to individual review meetings, but I'd take a couple of midfielders with me for Erin's individual review, and I'd say, look at Erin, she should be here, she should be here, she should be here. But it was actually for the other midfielders, it wasn't Mm -hmm. Erin. But that's the type of person she is. And we've seen her just do extraordinary things on the field, and I think she's going to just lift an entire competition it with her but I want to talk to you about what we've seen off the field and these are recent days she uh, is married she has twins with Tracy Uh, she goes to the AFLW first ever awards uh, kisses her wife on the lips stands up says I love you and uh, suddenly the world actually sees pictures and hears words in a sporting setting that we have never seen before. It's it's normalising same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage in a country where that's actually... You're not allowed to get married okay. um, if you're in love with someone of the same sex. Tell me your take on all of this. Yeah, I... I suppose it is what you've just said. To me, it, it was normal. You know, Erin and I walked out of that that after after function on Wednesday, Tuesday night, and she looked at her phone and her phone was blowing up, <laughs> um, and it was the photo of her kissing Tracy. Which to to her and I, she's just just it was just a quick kiss, just a quick um, you know peck on the lips, which has been captured. It wasn't some raging you know tongue down the throat yeah. or anything like that. But to to us, to to Erin, to the Adelaide Football Club, it's what. We think is we we it is normal. It wasn't unusual to us, so we never took it and went, oh wow, that's that's making um, marriage equality, yeah, normalising it. We just it's just how how it is. It's how we we see it as normal. And I know that she certainly thought it was that's just her life, and there's nothing different about it. She didn't do it for a political reason. She didn't do it for political gain. That's how. She is. Tracy comes to everything. The kids come to everything. The kids travel with us. So does Tracy. Tracy's like, you know, in our in our team dinners um, up on the Gold Coast the night before the grand final. It's just normal. Mm. And yet there is a level of responsibility. It's normal for mm. you. It's normal yeah. for them, for the team, and for a whole lot of people. And yet, it it generates discussion because of of the laws in this country. So there is a responsibility that comes with it. Has she? Do you think felt that at all, or has it been easy because it is just her being her? Uh, I wouldn't say that that's ever easy, and it's not something that Erin and I have ever talked about. Um, I, you know, it's it's hard to say everybody's individual circumstances, but what I do know of Erin Phillips is that she lives a life in America where um, um, being married to Tracy is completely normal. Mm. No one looks sideways at them. It's mm. just, yep, they're a, a happy, happily married family. And in Australia, um, it's that's not the same. Mm. Do you think the AFL, as we've known it, pre-AFLW, has been inclusive enough, supportive enough of everyone? I, I think um, the AFL's done an amazing job with this competition. And now all of the, the beautiful things that come with it uh, are, are literally coming with it. Mm. Um, 
you know, for me, when we talk about football, I just like like it to be about football. But the one thing that I've really enjoyed the most about this competition is the diversity that it's brought to the actual games itself. So we talk about the lockout, but look at the people inside that lockout. They're not your regular football goers. They're different people. So um, it's still about footy to me, but now there's just a great big huge crowd of diversity that comes yeah, with it it's a bigger pond hey like, yeah and that grand final i mean the, yeah the, i couldn't hear commentators because it was screaming it was like round one it was yeah there's a lot of screaming going on i know <laughs> has all the response you've got you've been surrounded by positivity yeah you've got success stories all over the place you want a flag mm. we haven't even talked about that and we can't um <laughs> Has it all been positive around you or has there been any negative? No, no. look, I don't think there is. I don't read the comments section on news articles mm-hmm. as, a, as a rule for myself. You know, my mum sort of, I think, early in the in the competition got a bit upset about someone's comments on an advertiser article. But I don't, I don't read that stuff. I really don't because if you did, you wouldn't go anywhere if you, if you did. You know, that's a that's a area of my past you know even growing up and being bullied that I now look at it and go I just don't need that right don't want to hear it so I think the thing of it is is there's just so much positivity around it and just keep going with that and if people don't like it they don't have to watch it just that, that that's how it is for me where does it go from here oh it gets bigger yep but not next year in terms of teams no I don't think it should I no. think it definitely should just uh get stronger yep. let it establish itself um, let those other states that have haven't had a chance to establish the great talent academies, all of those things, get them really up to it. Now they have got to catch up. They have to catch up, and um, it becomes a slicker product. You know, um, all of the grounds are, are great grounds. The change room facilities are you know schmick that we. It just gives everyone a chance to bed down. Okay, well, who is actually going to win this game? What What do we think of that coach's game style? You know, there's a bit more just knowledge around w- what to expect mm. and make it a little bit um, more professional. You've got 27 on your list now. All the clubs mm. do. What would you like it to be? I'd love. To, I I think 30 is around the right number. But for me, Sam, it's different because obviously I've got Darwin. Yeah. And I've got Adelaide. So I would love you know 30 in each each place. Um, but that's not going to happen. But I think the, the extension to 230 is about the right number. Should games be free entry next year? Yeah, they should be, but why not have a gold coin donation to, yeah. you know, women's and kids' hospitals or some other um, cause each week? I just think it's a great idea. It gets people getting used to um, having to pay to get in and then, you know, when more teams come in and perhaps a $5 or $10 charge comes on, it's not quite a shock. And pay? What should we do about that? I think it's um, natural that that pay will go up as as well as the you know the time commitment goes up. If the time commitment goes up, then you've got to pay people more money. Mm. That's that's what it is. And the more professional it becomes, um, then that's what will inevitably have to happen. Do you think they were underpaid this year, the players? Oh, I, I don't. It would have been really hard to go. Well, what's the right figure? Yeah, I was actually really when when the pay rates came out initially. If you look at these players, well. This time, 12 months ago, they were paying $400 for fees. Yep. So to then turn around and get a minimum of $8,500, it had to start somewhere. So I thought that was right. Okay. A coach's pay should be natural. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. I mean, I, that's, that's for me. You know, I've never been paid to coach football before, so that was, you know, always... You are now. Yeah, I am now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... But, but, like, honestly, but you... Right here on April the 2nd, what happens to you? Like, And what is your perfect job 
from yeah. here? Do you go back to police? Do you want a job in the men's program of the Crows, a, a Peter Searle kind of setup, but with a women's team to coach too? Yeah, I think um, those are all of the things that have got to be worked out. What would I love? Um, I, I am going back to work in a couple of weeks. That's, that's the first thing I'm going to call my boss this week and say, can I have another week off? Yeah. I, need, I actually need a real holiday, not just a, a fake football holiday. <laughs> I've been working harder than what I do normally at work. Um, but um, I, I, what I really would like to get out of is this, okay, well, do you want to coach men's or women's football? I just want to coach at the highest level. That doesn't have a definition of whether it's men's or women's football and that's the conversation that I'd like people to start having going forward. Why do you have to have this definition of, well, what is the best? And the reason is that's the best at the moment because, oh, you can work in it full-time and you are getting paid a decent wage. Um, I want to be the best coach I can be. Mm. You think you can do this at Adelaide or you want to? Oh, I want to, absolutely. You know, the way the club's... um, treated me and the way they set the first year up I can't I don't know what's happened at other clubs but all I can go on is my experience and how passionate the board is and how passionate the fans are Adelaide people are mental over football yeah. I mean you've probably seen that yeah. but yeah they, they absolutely love it so your dream job would be something it's coaching clearly yeah at Adelaide for now between programs that you are look I think well, I'd just love to be a full-time coach yeah, okay. um, without a, a, a definition of, of what that actually what breaks that is, down to yeah. be. You know, might, maybe there might be something in recruitment that I'm good at. Maybe there might be something, I don't know, in, in character and integrity that with interviewing that I do because obviously I'm qualified in that. Mm-hmm. You know, Who knows what there might be. Sorry, Federal Police. You're not a lost one. But just to wind up, and I think we could um, blow this podcast right out and um, <laughs> make it the longest everything. We'll try not to do that. So the last one, I just I would like your ultimate happy memory of the grand final, like the actual game. What passages of play burn bright in your mind uh, of that day? Um, the last second of the game. <laughs> Is probably the the thing that where I was most emotional. I would I would think um, you know we had a live countdown in the coach's box from about seventy seven seconds, which was so frustrating. Um, and my assistant coaches went up with about five seconds, four seconds to go, and I still at that stage would not did not think because it was there, it was in there forward fifty, and I didn't think that we were going to get it. Um, and um, it got to one second to go and I got up out of my chair at that point and that was it, just had my arms up and we were just all stacks on each other in the box. Everyone was crying, everyone was just like slapping each other. We were just all tri- tripping over each other. There's a bit, there were about eight of us in the coach's box and it was just amazing. Give me goosebumps. Yeah. Um, you finished, I, I hope you don't mind me revealing mm-hmm. this here, but you, you finished the night by singing to your team because they're dead you <laughs> simply the best by Tina Turner yeah it's the way you ended up it's been a magical ride watching you you've given us such great insight and and thank you so much oh no worries I'm, I'm glad that everyone's enjoyed it as much as we have <laughs> you can give us a, a final bar if you want <laughs> no I'm not cheap Sam you're gonna okay, have to yeah. it's just not free <laughs> we'll work that in next time That'll be Vex Karaoke. Vex, thank you so much. No problem. And, um, sleep tight when you finally get some. Can't wait. <laughs>
We're talking footy.